0: Well, I really hope I'm not worrying you already with my subtitle, The History and Meaning of Christmas. It it, it sounds maybe a little bit worthy, a little bit heady. Uh, Christmas has so many beautiful, magical elements. Uh, The liturgy, the, the, the hymns, the feasting, the gifts, the family. It's quite possible to ruin it all by being overly analytical, overly historical. Uh, There's no better way to spoil a poem than to overanalyze it. You ruin a joke as soon as you stop and then start to explain the joke. And I hope that what uh, follows doesn't feel like that, despite my subtitle. I hope it feels more like when an art lover points out their favorite Rembrandt and asks you to notice the color, the light, the shade, the focus, the perspective. That's what I hope to do uh, this Christmas. And of course, you're going to be the judge. So let me then begin with a word about the history behind Christmas. Um, There is little historical doubt that the gospel writers themselves, in putting forward their Christmas story, want readers to read it as history. That is, it does not have the flavor of, say, the Iliad, Homer's great Greek epic. Or the Aeneid, uh, Virgil's great Roman epic, which are set in distant legendary time, self-consciously so. But our text, insists, it's set in real time and real places. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Then he stops to give us this little detail. Uh, That was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, expecting you to know that there were two or maybe three And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. The thing is, we know the precise dates of Augustus. We know broadly the dates of Quirinius. We know of at least one census right around this time, though Luke is probably referring to an earlier one. We know of Syria and Galilee and Nazareth and Bethlehem, they're all real places that have left first century remains and you can go there and look at those remains. The next chapter of Luke, which begins the adult ministry of Jesus, begins with even more historical precision. This is a reading no one wants to get, uh, to have to do publicly, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You read that and you think, well, am I in a history lesson suddenly? But the thing is, we can place every one of these figures from extra biblical sources and cross-matching them, we can know that the date he's specifically referring to is AD 28. Now my point isn't that we can verify all the details. Of course we can't. And when you think about it, most things that happen in our lives, even if you keep a diary, won't be verifiable to future generations of historians. Just doesn't leave evidence beyond your own evidence. But we can corroborate beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus lived. That he was a famous teacher, reputed healer, that he was crucified under the fifth governor of Judea and declared to be the Messiah by those who believed he was raised to life. This has to be said over and over, increasingly, I think, because it turns out Australians are increasingly lacking in confidence that the Jesus story is at all true. Um, A survey was just released by NCLS Research just last week. This is quite a church-friendly research group. They asked a representative sample of Australians, Which of the following statements best reflects your understanding of Jesus Christ? 22% agreed that Jesus is a mythical or fictional character. 29% said they just don't know. And only 49%, a minority of Australians, affirmed Jesus was a real person who actually lived. This is terrible news for Christianity in this country, especially at Christmas time. It's also bad news for historical literacy in this country, if you ask me, because it might be the case that only a minority of Australians think Jesus was a real person. But I can assure you 99.9% of professional ancient historians are sure Jesus really lived. And the ABC uh, just yesterday kindly published my own article responding to this survey, where I was allowed to explain why it is mainstream secular historians have no doubts that Jesus really was born in Israel, that he really did grow up as a famous teacher and launched a movement that changed the world. And that's the other thing I want to briefly reflect on the ways, or at least one of the ways, Jesus changed the world. And this brings us to the meaning of Christmas. I know there's a lot of um, talk about the true meaning of Christmas. You know, um, conservatives, you'll hear, say the true meaning of Christmas is family values or Christian culture or something. Progressives say the true meaning of Christmas is look after refugees. Jesus himself was temporarily a refugee. I heard the Prime Minister say um, the true meaning of Christmas is love and acceptance. Now, I have sympathy for all of these true meanings of Christmas. I just think they're back to front. I'd prefer to say that Christmas started a revolution in how we think about God. And therefore, in how we think about a good life. And it's important to get the order right. A new thought about God himself that leads to a new vision of the good life. And I can state the, the revolution I'm talking about very simply. The creator, it turns out, is humbly disposed toward us. The creator is humbly disposed toward us. Everything in the Christmas narrative emphasizes humble service over power. The contrast is really quite striking in our passage, Emperor Augustus flexing his muscles in a census, which of course is all about extracting more money, working out how many citizens you have, and so on. But God makes his move, we're told, humbly amongst the lowly, The Messiah is born in a nondescript village of maybe only 600 people in Bethlehem to peasant parents. And to add to that, there's no room for them. Joseph went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there. The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Why? Because there was no guest room available for them. This is actually the first of three references to manger in the passage that was just read to us. It seems to be a key term. Luke is emphasising Manger, and of course a manger is not a royal cot. It's an animal feeding area. Scholars are still debating whether it means the animal feeding room or whether it means the trough. Either way, it's not great. It's the lowest of the low. It's humble. And um, the opening lines of John's gospel also just read to us. Interestingly, don't have a Christmas narrative, but make exactly the same point, but in theological terms. In the beginning was the Word, John says, in his opening uh, sentence. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then by the end of that paragraph, he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word that was God has become flesh." Now, if you know anything about uh, the Greek language in which the Gospel of John was written, you know that uh, Greek has five or six different ways of describing the human being. And it's, in a, it's a kind of hierarchy of description. So the highest level is pneuma, uh, is pneuma meaning spirit. And then it is Tsukos, soul or psychology, we might say. And then it is nous, mind. And then it is kardia, heart or emotion. And then it is soma, the whole body. And down the bottom is this word here. Hologos sarx egeneto, the word flesh became. Sucks, And the point John is making is precisely the point Matthew and Luke make. God has humbled himself in flesh, in a manger. He is so humbly disposed toward us that he got his hands dirty in a manger. And of course... Bloody on a cross. Come back at Easter for that scoop. In perhaps the earliest Christmas sermon that still survives, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, preached these words The Word of the Father, by whom all time was created. Was made flesh and was born in time for us. The maker of man became man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, and that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that security might be wounded, that life might die. This isn't just theology. It is, as I said a moment ago, a revolution in the way we think about God in the West as a result of this story. And therefore, in what we think of the good life, a new vision of God as humbly, lovingly, lowly, disposed toward us led to a vision of the good life that involves love and humility. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here is one of the most widely respected historians in the world today. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just. And because of that, Christians are called always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world where the gods may be just but may not, where the gods may love human beings but may not, where being merciful, you know, might be the right thing on a certain day but might not, where loving your neighbour, you know, might serve you but might not. The Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good for everybody, and they are always good. I think that was transformational for the Roman world, and then for the Christian world, and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. This is why the sentimentalising and moralising we often hear at Christmas isn't entirely mistaken. If the Creator is humbly disposed toward us, it makes sense to say that Christmas has something to say about family and refugees and feeding the poor and love and so on. It's just that it gets things back to front, to say that Christmas is about these things. No, Christmas is really all about a revolution in how we think of God himself. And as a consequence, in how we think of the good life. We unlock the meaning of Christmas um, not just by giving gifts to loved ones, being nice to strangers, but by marveling at God himself, rejoicing in his disposition toward his creatures, which is exactly the response of the shepherds in our Luke 2 narrative. The shepherds found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. They spread the word, and all who heard it were amazed. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. God is not after our mere historical confidence, He isn't interested in mere cultural respect or even just a good life. He wants us to find joy in the news that he is humbly disposed toward each one of us. I'm not sure if you saw the vulnerable um, article last weekend by Stan Grant. In it, he lamented the loss of wonder he used to have growing up when it came Christmas time. He he was raised in a very deeply uh, Christian, indigenous family. I think his father and uncle were both Christian pastors. Now, uh, Stan Grant isn't sure he retains any of the faith, but he recognised something has been lost in society and in himself and he wrote this, he speaks of a cynicism that has pervaded society and has fractured bonds of tradition and family and community and faith, particularly Christian faith. What are we left with, he asks, a society obsessed with cartoonish cancel culture, debilitating contests for recognition and poisonous Identity wars, all of it like a cancer, eating democracy itself. There is little transcendence, just inherent pessimism and hopelessness. My Christmases are sadder now that my grandparents, uncles and aunties are gone. Our world is immeasurably poorer for the loss and derision of faith and the substitute of cynicism. I'm sure every Christian who read that article wanted to ring him up or tweet him, or get locked in a room with him and just say, the answer to this lament is to look once again at the history and the meaning of Christmas, to embrace this revolution in how we think about God. God is humbly disposed toward us. And if that's true, that is certainly the antidote to the pessimism and hopelessness Stan Grant speaks of and to the cancel culture and identity wars. If God himself has come to us in humility, the gentleness and grace, if that's true, that is the key to transcendence to hope to joy and yes to our grace toward our neighbor but it begins with wonder at the message of christmas that god became socks flesh laid in a manger god is humbly disposed toward us Merry Christmas. Our Lord, please, will you write your word on our hearts and wherever we find ourselves in our journey toward or away from the faith. Help us find joy in the news, That you are humble toward us, you come to us in grace and mercy. For we ask it in the name of Jesus.